I want to tell you something. The reason I wanted to do this Ruth study is about three years ago, my wife did a study on Ruth. And she got me so excited about it, I wanted to do it myself. And so she shared some things, and then I found the resources that she was using. Then I started uh, exploring on some different things and came across uh, just some beautiful, beautiful hidden nuggets in the book of Ruth. And so you are here indulging me because I'm having a blast with this study. Uh, but I, I can tell you one of the goals that I have is that I want to get you curious. I want to get you curious to study God's Word with a little bit more critical eye, looking for things maybe that a casual reading would not reveal. And so last week when I brought up some, some different things um, and then kind of highlighted maybe where we're going in the future, I, I wanted you to see that if, you, if we just read the story by itself, it's a beautiful story. But there are things that if we understand the history, if we understand the Jewish culture, if we understand the law, which as Baptists we're not real good at that because it doesn't apply to us. We're, we're in grace. But you know what? There's, there's things that we can learn that give us insight uh, that if we understand them, we'll see the story play out, not play out differently, but it'll come to life in a different way. And so I want to, hopefully when you get done with this, you'll say to me, are the rest of the Bible, uh, books in the Bible like this? Do they have little secret cookies that I could find? And then what are the resources? And I'm going to tell you a couple of, my, a couple of our resources. Um, two summers ago, we were traveling together, and, and this is kind of the way Cindy and I do it. We drive, but I'm holding onto the wheel and pressing the gas pedal, and traffic makes her unsettled. It makes her nervous. And so we figured this thing out that works for us. She reads, and I'm auditory. So I can pay attention to traffic and navigate through craziness, and she can read, and she's not looking at the traffic. And so we read books when we're driving around, and I, it's very seldom that we get in the, book, in, the, in the car and she says, well, I don't want to read. Or mostly it's, what it, where's, the, where's my book? <laughs> so we read a trilogy of books that would be a fun trilogy for you to read. Uh, the author's name is Lois Tverberg, and she's a, a Lutheran woman from Minnesota, and she moved over to Israel and studied the culture and learned Hebrew, and she just brings out some incredible things. And one of the things that kind of has influenced me is, is in the Hebrew language, she says that the Greek language is kind of like a scalpel. It's very precise, very accurate. Every word has multiple uh, facets of declension that we need to understand to know exactly what the author meant. The Hebrew is very different. There are about 20% uh, only 20% of the Greek words uh, in terms of vocabulary are, are the equivalent in Hebrew. Hebrew has only about 4,000 vocabulary words. So people who tell you that they learned Hebrew, um, it is a challenging language because it's an ancient language, but in terms of vocabulary, it's, it's not incredible because I think English language has close to 70,000 words, and Hebrew just has 4,000. But one of the things that she revealed was that uh, just a picture is that the Hebrew language and vocabulary in Hebrew is like a overstuffed suitcase. Just all jammed in there and probably all of us have you know put too much in a suitcase, sat on it, tried to close it out, had to take a few things out. But basically what she was trying to show was that there that a Hebrew word may have multiple meanings in exactly the same place, different than other languages where a word has a specific meaning in its context a Hebrew word might have multiple meanings. And the reason is because there's multiple layers in understanding the Hebrew. You've got the, the, just the story that we're reading. And then last week I mentioned there's the, the homiletical uh, uh, level where you, you find application to, to life. And then there's another level that the, the Hebrew rabbis call the remez or the sod. And it's, they, they just say that's kind of like a... a a hint of something deeper. I call it a wink from God. Doesn't necessarily prove anything except that our God was very active through the person of the Holy Spirit uh, writing His Word and making it rich for us. And so as we study this, 
I hope that uh, I, if I go over your head, do this. If I'm not talking loud enough, do this. And, uh, and I guess if, if, if I get her heretical, you'll vote with your feet. <laughs> but let me pray for us. The names of the books, good, I didn't even say it. Lois de Verberg, three books, three different books. The first one is called Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus. Second one is called Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. And the third one is called Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus. And the subtitle for all of them is How Jesus' Jewishness Affects Our Understanding of the Bible. Or something like that. What's, is that the correct subtitle? You can, you can look, up, look them up on Amazon. They're not long books. But we had a fun read and, and, uh, and very exciting because I'm not Jewish if you hadn't figured it out. And so it was a kind of an indoctrination into some things that um, even in my seminary training uh, was not uh, something that was emphasized because we're New Testament believers and we've got, got uh, the stories down. You know, I know about David and Goliath and, and now it's time to move on to grace. But uh, there's beautiful things that we can learn that do apply to us. And um, so I'm just trying to get you curious, get you to wonder a little bit. But anyway, we're in chapter 2. Did I miss anything else? Okay, so as we open up God's Word, we want to start by prayer. So let me pray for us. Our great and glorious God, we come before you just uh, as a group of people saying, we want you to teach us. We want you to speak to us. And Lord, we want you to have the freedom to have access to our hearts to change us. Lord, I read just last week uh, the statement that you made, open your mouth and I'll fill it. And Lord, we want to do that. We want to open our minds, open our mouths, open our hearts and let you fill them. And so please be with us tonight. Pray that I would not get in the way of what you want to say to each person. And I pray that we'd all walk out of here with a greater sense of awe of who you are, your love for us, and the, the great extent that you went to reveal who you are and, 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 and bring us into a relationship with you. And thank you for this incredible story and uh, just even the people that are involved in uh, what they went through, but then, Lord, how it applies to us and the, and the richness of all that it says to us. So just teach us now, and use me if you can, and uh, help me to say no more, no less than you have me to say. We pray all this believing in our Savior's name, this is the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, last week we read all the way through chapter 1, and I tried to throw in some things along the way that would make it interesting. You, you all know I have six weeks to cover this, and... Um, so I'm, I'm going to slow down a little bit. We will get, I think, most of the way through chapter 2 today. But then I'm going to take a couple weeks on each of the last two chapters because there's just a lot of cookies that I want to make sure that we get to nibble on along the way. Um, just by way of review, we, um, last week I proposed that Ruth, uh, which is uh, identified by most commentators as a, something... Uh, a, 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 uh, something that took place in the time period of the judges and maybe more specifically at the time of Gideon. Um, so if you want to read a little bit more about that, you can look in Judges chapter 6 through 8. But we, introduced, uh, we were introduced to the characters, um, Elimelech, who was the patriarch of this family. And he, his name, does anybody remember what his name means? God is my king. God is my king or God is king, either one, which again I think is kind of an ironic thing because... Uh, this happens in the time where the book of Judges says that there was no king in Israel. And so he had a great, great name, but um, some of the commentators that I read indicated that maybe God wasn't his king in terms of decisions that he made because uh, most of the commentators I read said that it, they made a mistake by leaving Israel and going to Moab. Uh, we talked about uh, the reason that they left. There was a famine in the land. Uh, apparently it was a local famine because there was food in, in Moab and that was just about 60 to 70 miles away. Um, going back to the idea that there was no king in Israel, um, the, the follow-up statement of that is that everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. And that's the last statement in the book of Judges. And 
you know, that might sound like a kind of a good thing. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. But the problem is, is that everybody that was there were sinners just like us. And they did what was right in their own eyes. And so it's a, a very unfortunate and uh, shameful uh, description of what was going on at that time. Um, so we see that, uh, that this, uh, well, that statement is not a huge endorsement of that time, but the book of Ruth was just a, a beautiful story that happened right in the middle of that. And one of the things that I see in that is just that God never leaves a remnant. I was talking with somebody this afternoon just about how um, Elijah thought that he was by himself running from Jezebel, and God had to remind him, hey, I, I, you're, not, you're not alone. I've got people that I've kept to myself that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, and, uh, and you're going to make it. And so um, we're going to look at a time here where we have our, some of our main characters uh, think that uh, there's, there's no hope and they're alone in all this. So we've covered the time reference. Uh, we've covered the, the characters. Um, I want to make a comment about the land. Um, part of the reason that people, um, some of the commentators complained about Elimelech leaving was because uh, he had packed everything that he knew and went into a land where they worshipped and served a pagan god. And they left the land that was described as a land flowing with milk and honey uh, for a land that was uh, filled with their enemies. Um, and, you know, I really don't, I guess I don't blame him too much if your family's starving and you don't have any resources. Um, you go to Walmart, there's nothing there. You go to Kroger there, you're going to go keep going someplace to find food. Um, but the problem is they went there and got food, and as often happens, they got comfortable. And the scriptures say that they stayed there about 10 years. And it was uh, sometime after the famine had finished because... Uh, we find out in chapter 1 that, uh, that Naomi finds out that God has restored his blessing back on the people and there's food back in Bethlehem. And after three funerals, uh, her husband's and her two boys' funerals, she decides, I ain't got nothing here. I better go back. There's food over there. But she goes back a different woman. Um, you know, when Elimelech died, uh, these women... Uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the sons take women. So in chronological order, Elimelech passed, and then these two boys did something that the law prohibits. They took wives of the Moabite women. And I think I mentioned last week that, that it was forbid by law for them to do that. Part of the reason was uh, they were Gentiles, and part of the reason was is they were connected to the, the women who snuck into the camp uh, when... Y'all remember Balaam and the donkey. And uh, Balaam was brought in to prophesy, prophet for hire to prophesy against the people of Israel. And he couldn't do it because that's not how it works. And they didn't like that. But then somewhere he snuck a note over to the king and said, here's how you can get what you want. Just send your pretty little girls over there to the camp and get these guys to sin with them. And God will judge them. And that's exactly what happened. And 24,000 men from the tribe of Simeon were left off the roster when numbers was recorded. So the Jews were forbidden to marry Gentile women. In fact, there was a curse that was placed on that that we can find in, in uh, Deuteronomy in that uh, if they did, their children were not allowed to participate in public worship at the temple or the tabernacle for the 10th generation. So that's how serious God was about it. Now, um, Sometime after these marriages, uh, both the brothers died. And I don't know if that was a, a consequence of them violating the law that God had given, but Naomi is now without her husband, and I'm sure that was traumatic and, and grievous for her. She's had two weddings and now two more funerals, and finally she just feels like God has not just given up on her, but that God has a curse on her. Um, we have a friend, um, Edgar, who is one of the lead uh, missionaries in Hyderabad, India, and uh, he developed a ministry a few years ago because, and you ladies will maybe feel for this, if a woman's husband dies in India, the, they believe, even her own family believes, that she's cursed. And so one of, the, one of the traditions that they do is they will bring 
this woman and they'll put makeup on her like a clown. And they dress her in her wedding dress and they put cosmetic jewelry on her and they bring her out publicly and they, they curse her and they rip her, her wedding gown off of her and they rip her, her jewelry off of her and they cast her out as cursed and nobody has contact with her. Her own family won't take care of her. And so he developed a ministry where they would raise money for these widows and they were responding to Christ because they were giving them a bag of rice every month and, and then a, a certain measure of, of uh, um, material that they could make something out of and sell. And then they got word that some of these widows were sharing it with other widows who didn't have, who weren't included in that program. But um, there's different things around the country, around the world rather, that, that uh, indicate that different groups of people, a lot of times based upon their religious beliefs, handle things differently than we do. And so Naomi has three funerals, her husband, her two sons, and she decides that she's going to return back to Bethlehem. And we talked about Bethlehem, the house of bread. And they left because there was none, and now she's going back because there was. And we'll talk about bread in just a, a minute. Um, but uh, she talks to her daughters-in-law. She tries to scare them off with just logic. I, listen, I'm not going to be able to produce any more sons. You'd be foolish to come with me. Even if I had a husband today and conceived children, you're not going to hang around that long. So you just need to go back to your people and back to your God. And Orpah, the, one of the uh, daughters-in-law, takes her up on that in tears, walks away, and walks out of, of the story that God was writing. But Ruth clings to her. Ruth hangs on to her, and she gives this seven-part death oath that says, I'm not going to leave you. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you live, I'm going to live. I'm going to live with your people. I'm going to worship your God. Where you die, I'm going to die. And, and worse can happen to me. I give God a freedom to do worse to me if I ever am departed you except by death. It was a death oath that she gave to her mother-in-law, and you can read about that in verses 16 and 17. It's beautiful. It's also very powerful. And the rest of the chapter is, you know, them heading back to Bethlehem. They get back to Bethlehem, and it causes a stir in town. And I, I think I mentioned last week that Bethlehem probably, at this time, had a population between four and 7,000 people, which is a pretty large crowd. But um, I think, you know, sometimes we've had that large of a crowd here. So it's fit inside our sanctuary. Um, I can remember a couple times where we had people sitting on the floor and in the aisles. So I know we've had that many people here. But um, the word got out, Naomi's come back, and some people try to greet her, and she tells them, hey, I, because of what I've experienced and because of how God has treated me, I want you to no longer call me Naomi. I want you to call me Mara, which means bitter. And so she goes back to the house of bread. People recognize her, and, but she's uh, a changed woman. Uh, she's had a harsh experience. She's come back empty, and that's where we left off with um, chapter 1, just this little statement that they came and returned uh, to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And one of the things that I shared with you last week that I hope you'll take with you kind of as just a little nugget when you're studying God's Word is that if you come across a detail this seems to be just superfluous or unnecessary. You need to stop because, again, the rabbis believe that there's something worth spending time there and digging about. And so I want to take some time talking about um, uh, what the barley harvest and what that's all about. And to do so, I'm going to have to kind of jump ahead, but I, I, have to, I have to stop on something. Last week at the end of my session, my wife said, well, I thought you were going to tell them where the Moabites came from and why that was such a problem. I, t I told you about a later problem, but the Mo does anybody know where the, the origin of the Moabite tribe came from? Okay, it's not a Bible quiz, Ruth. Yes, you can read about this in Genesis 19. 
they fled. They didn't have a husband. They think to themselves, let's, we got to figure something out. So they got their father drunk, and in his drunken stupor, he conceived two children, one with each of his daughters. One son was named Ammon. The other one was named uh, Moab. And so that's kind of the beginning of this group of, of people, this tribe. And so um, there's a little nugget that maybe helps understand why God was so much against uh, the Jewish people having interaction with them because they later adopted a worship to Chemosh, who was a, a, a god that uh, received uh, human sacrifice, and, um, and that certainly is against God's design. But um, we've already covered this. Uh, this took place when the judges ruled. Uh, everybody did what was right in their own size, their own eyes, and the characters. Again, Elimelech's name means God is my king. Uh, Naomi, her name means pleasant. Machlan was the older son, and his name is, uh, it means to be sick or sickly. Uh, Chilion was the other brother, and his name is just a little bit better. Uh, it means pining or wasting away. And, uh, and I can only imagine what these guys looked like. Um, Orpah meant fawn or gazelle, and Ruth meant friendship or desirable. And so we come to the beginning of the barley season, and I just want to take a minute and talk about the Jewish calendar because this was something a couple years ago that I really knew nothing about. And, and a, a true confession, you know, when I, historically when I'd read the Bible and I come across something I didn't really understand, I'm on a reading schedule that I've got to keep going, and I just skim on by, nothing to, nothing to see here, just keep on going. Uh, but I don't do that anymore. So now, um, as we look at this, uh, I don't, can everybody see this up here? Okay. We've got um, our calendar in the black, and we start right here with January, and that's the beginning of a new year for us. Uh, but the J Jewish calendar is rotated from that, and that's why, you know, we have uh, uh, Yom Kippur, uh, the Jewish New Year, which happens in December, and, um, and that's the civil calendar. But this is what we're looking at here is the agricultural calendar. And the reason I want to bring this up is because um, the Jewish understanding of the calendar, Rabbi, Rabbi will say that the Jewish calendar is, is the Jewish child's catechism. In other words, this is how you understand God. This is how you learn about His ways. This is how you're, you become an under, uh, a Jew who understands what we're all about. So uh, for us, it it's kind of doesn't mean much, but... Um, in Exodus 20, I mean, I'm sorry, Exodus 12, uh, when the ark finally lands, then God does something kind of unique. He tells Noah, I want you to make the seventh month the first month. So we're going to change things up. And so what we have here is the Jewish um, religious calendar around the outside, and then we have some of the feasts that take place, and then... Uh, you're going to read, as you read through uh, the book of Ruth, different months that are mentioned at different times, which, again, don't mean anything to us. And a lot of times they don't match up exactly with our months because you can see there's kind of lines. So you read uh, the month of Nisan, which is the first month in the calendar, Jewish calendar. It kind of starts in mid-March and goes to April, and it's actually a lunar calendar. And it's the fourth full moon of the new year. And so this is why um, the... Passover, if you get a calendar that identifies the, cast, the uh, Passover, um, it might show up on a Tuesday, it might show up on a Saturday, it might show up on a Wednesday because it's always on the 14th of Nisan. We get in the New Testament, uh, the, um, the lambs were brought into the, to the priest on the 10th of Nisan and they were examined to see that they were flawless and then they would go home and live with the family for four days until the 14th of Nisan, which is when the Passover lambs were sacrificed. And that doesn't really mean anything to us because we don't bring, we don't have any animals right now. We bring mice and snakes and spiders in our house. But, um, but the Jewish people, they did this annually. And I want to throw another thing out here that would be maybe a filter for you as you study the Old Testament. And that is that uh, for the Jewish mind, um, 
for actually for the Western mind. Let me start with that. For the Western mind, for the for the Greek thought, prophecy is a prediction and then a fulfillment. And that's true, and we see that happen over and over in Scripture. But for the Jewish thought, from the Jewish mind, prophecy is pattern. It's a repeated pattern, and that's why the calendar and the events that take place on the calendar with the, the feasts and the holidays all are, are a teaching tool to teach the, the children, here's what our people have been through, but then even more than that, here's what we have coming. And so Passover was a celebration of God's uh, deliverance out of Egypt. Um, they, off, they, they offered a sacrificial lamb uh, the night of the Passover, and also for us, you know, we think of a day beginning at 12.01 at night, one minute after midnight. For the Jewish person, they think of the day beginning at, at dusk and, and being finished at the next dusk. So um, all that comes into play when we talk about the sacrificial system. But we have Passover, and then we have this feast right after it called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, um, and then right after that, it's not on this particular calendar, it's what's the Feast of first fruits, And it all takes place within the same week. And so sometimes just, uh, uh, just common knowledge, they call it Passover because it's boom, 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 three, three feasts in a row. But um, each one of them has some significance. Uh, Passover had to do with, the, uh, if you've ever been to a Seder supper, all the, the elements that go along with that had significance and meaning. It was a, it was a meal that was prepared quickly. That's what, what the unleavened bread was about, but it was also leaven was perceived as something that re reflected sin. And so over here we have what's called the second Passover, and that was something that was, uh, again, uh, connected to uh, the calendar, not to a particular day on the calendar like Christmas, or I'm sorry, like Christmas, it was like Christmas. December 25th can land on any day of the week depending on the year. But uh, Easter for us lands on a what? A Sunday every year. And there's some reasons why of that. That's because historically we have been Protestants and the church, uh, early church tried to distance themselves from the Jewish people and not have it connected to Passover. And so they went through all kinds of crazy things to determine when Easter would be. But it, they, they do that so that it never lines up with Passover. But um, I won't get into all that. Um, so anyway, uh, we have, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this. There are three feasts in the spring. There are three in the fall. Maybe you've heard of the Feast of Trumpets or the uh, Feast of Tabernacles or the, the, on the Day of Atonement, which is also a feast. So we have these three feasts in the spring. We have three feasts in the, in the fall. And then we have one kind of here close to the middle the Feast of Weeks, and it is what we would call Pentecost. It's 50 days after Passover, actually 50 days after First Fruits. And why um, we would bring that up is because we celebrate that as the birthday of the church. The New Testament church was born on the day of Pentecost. And um, Pentecost is a, um, it's an interesting thing because in the Jewish liturgy, as they read through the Bible with the children, according to the, uh, the, the, the calendar, guess which book they read during the Feast of Weeks? The Book of Ruth, yes. Isn't that interesting? A story about a Jewish man who takes a Gentile bride. And, oh, by the way, the only feast where they use unleavened bread. So all the other six feasts, they use unleavened bread, and on Pentecost, I didn't say that right, on Pentecost, they use leavened bread. It's the only one that they use leavened bread. And I just find it fascinating, just some of the, you know, the characteristics of this. So uh, last week, I tried to explain first fruits and when that took place, and I, I think I've got it written down, so I'm just going to read it. It's, it's uh, the first Sunday after, after Passover, after Sabbath. So we have Passover on a Tuesday, Sabbath on a Saturday. It's the very next day. And it always will be the after that Sabbath, after Passover, 
that very first day. This is part of the reason, part of the reason we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter is because it's connected to first fruits. And Jesus became the first fruit of the resurrection from the dead. Now, other people were resurrected from the dead, but not in the same way that he was, and certainly not in the way that he's going to raise, raise us from the dead. So, Jesus, uh, Jewish name or Jewish pronunciation, Yeshua, he fulfilled the feast of uh, first fruits by becoming the first fruit of the resurrection, meaning that every believer, whether in Hebrew scriptures or the, or the New Testament, will be experiencing the same type of resurrection and will never experience death again. And you can go to Romans 6 and read about this, that, um, uh, that we're to consider ourselves to be dead to sin but alive in, to God in Christ Jesus, and that uh, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life that he lives, he lives to God, and he'll never die again. And that's what we have to look forward to because of his resurrection. So we're alive, if we're alive at the time of the rapture of the church. Uh, we're only going to be a very small percentage of, of New Testament believers who will not see physical death. And oh, by the way, there's a tradition, a Jewish tradition. It's kind of hard to find and I've not been able to validate it. Only one of the, the people that I have listened to uh, brought it up. That there's a Jewish tradition that Enoch translated on the day of Pentecost. And I just kind of find that interesting. If that's true, I don't know if it's true, but I just kind of find it interesting that here's a man, which, by the way, you can, you know, if you want to play games with people, um, how is it that the oldest man who ever lived died before his father? He walked with God and was no more. He didn't die. And he's the oldest man. The oldest man is... Methuselah, but he died before his father, who was Enoch. So if you know the genealogy. But anyway, um, Enoch was translated out before the, the flood, and, um, and they celebrate his birthday on the Feast of Weeks, uh, which we've called Pentecost. I just think it's kind of ironic and interesting, if that's true, that he was taken out before the calamity hit. Uh, but anyway... Um, so the, the calendar has some great things to, to reveal to us, but it's difficult because we're not familiar with it. Have, have, have any of you ever seen something like this before? Okay, a few. Okay. And um, I had to go to great lengths to find it, but anyway. So anyway, all this is, to me, it's, it's uh, very provocative because... Pentecost gave us the birth of the church, which is the bride of Christ. And the story of Ruth is about a, a Jewish nobleman taking on a Gentile bride, um, a kinsman redeemer. And that ought to be enough to have us shout because it's just incredible. So anyway, all right, chapter 2, here we go. That was all free. So these are the three main characters for the rest of our narrative. Naomi, who's a widow, she loses both of her son in a foreign land. She's hopeless and she's desperate. She concludes that God's hand is against her. And I think many of us can relate to that. Uh, uh, how, how often have you thought uh, when something negative happens in your life, what did I do to deserve this? Um, where did I go wrong? How did I sin that God would send this my way. Um, today, we have a lot of people who ask the question uh, kind of in a negative way, Im implicating God in negative things that happen in their life by saying, you know, if God is really a loving God, He wouldn't have let this happen. Therefore, either He doesn't exist or He's not loving as He says that He is. So we have an opportunity, I think, with a lot of young people to try to answer that question. Uh, we, our second person is Ruth, uh, also a widow, uh, but Rejecting her heritage, uh, clinging to her mother-in-law, leaving everything that she knew, her family, everything that she was trained in, all the, the religious training she got, and with really no promise of anything better. They were going back. Uh, they were connected to Judah and to Bethlehem, but when they left, they abandoned the land. And, uh, and one of the things that we're going to get into uh, in a couple weeks is just the whole idea of the redemption of the land. Um, and next week we're going to touch on the Leverite marriage, which is a, a huge thing that 
if we don't, well, first of all, we're not going to get it. But second of all, if once we kind of understand at least that's what God had them do, it's, it's a beautiful thing as well. But Ruth's a widow, and she's just following her mother-in-law. So I, I'm guessing that before Naomi got bitter, that there may have been some instruction about Yahweh, the true God. Because part of her, uh, her promise to follow Naomi is, I'm going to worship your God. I'm going to abandon my God. I'm going to worship your God. I'm going to be with your people. And I'm going to die and be buried here. So even though she was an outlier, uh, this is the place marker that reminds us that um, this was a unique thing because she was a Moabitess and they weren't even supposed to have any interaction with them. And a big part of it was God didn't want them to adopt the worship style that they had practiced. So they hear that God has visited Bethlehem in another vision. Uh, Naomi just brings it out, you know, God's had it in for me over here. Maybe if I get back over there, something might change. So let's pick up in chapter 2, and we're just going to kind of read through this, and I'm going to make some comments as we go. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, and that's a term that we're going to bring up and, and talk about a little bit today and then go into greater detail um, uh, how it fits into the whole story next week. But um, And this... I'm reading out of New American Standard. It says, a man of great wealth. So this, this kinsman of her husband was a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, who was her husband, and his name was Boaz. Now, the Hebrew word for a man of great wealth here implies that there was more than just a, a big pile of money that he was sitting on. It indicates that he was a man of honor and valor. It may, may have been a, a, a warrior of some sort, but he had a reputation and... And this is uh, how the designation that he gave to him. And certainly he had great wealth because he had some land and he was able to hire workers to help um, harvest this land. Um, but we find out on the front end a little clue that Naomi is connected to him through her husband. So he's not a kinsman to Naomi. He's a kinsman to Elimelech, who was her husband. And then we get into verse 2, and Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose son I, find, I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So Naomi takes initiative and says, we got to get something to eat. And I don't know how she knew about this. I can only assume that Naomi had clued her in about this. But they had a... a, a um, a law, the law of gleaning, that apparently she was aware of. And so she asks her mother-in-law, will you release me to go gather some food for us? And the law of gleaning is a, is a kind of a unique thing. Um, you know, as we're reading this, um, it's, I don't think it's any, any coincidence that she, she ends up uh, landing where she is. But in the law of gleaning, they were, they were told that they could go and harvest in a particular uh, area, but it had to be after the harvesters had made their first pass through the fields. So a farmer would plant his field, and whatever crop he had, he would hire people to come in, and they would harvest the field. Uh, as in the New Testament, we see this play out um, in, in Matthew chapter 15, because there's a time where the Pharisees come, and they rebuke Jesus because his disciples are eating bread without washing their hands. And technically, they weren't eating bread. They were eating wheat kernels, and they were following the law of gleaning because the farmers were commanded of God. And we can find out about this in, um, both in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And um, the, um, they were, the farmers were allowed to harvest to make one pass through the field, but only one pass by law. They were not allowed to harvest the perimeter of the field, so that those who were poor or widows or orphans could reach over the fence and get food for themselves. And then the food that was dropped on the ground or the food that the harvesters didn't pick up in the first pass, the poor, the widows, the orphans, the strangers, the people who were not part of the Hebrew community could come in and gather for themselves. And Jesus, and not Jesus, but God attaches this to their time of slavery in Egypt. He says, you were once slaves in a foreign land, and I want you to take care of the strangers and the orphans and the widows and those who are needy. I want you to take care of them. And so 
there was a built-in model for, um, for welfare. They didn't call it that. It's different than the type of welfare we have. We just mail a check to their house. And, but in those days, they had to either go themselves or they had to get somebody to go for them and pick up the grain and pick up the, you know, what was left behind on the, uh, you know, if, if it was wheat, if, if the harvesters didn't get something, then they could come and get that if it was still on, or they could reach over the fence and get it. And by law, the owner of the field, the, law, the Lord of the harvest, had to leave that there for these people. So that's just kind of the setup. Uh, I think it's important to understand that. So Ruth appeals to Naomi, let me go in the land, or let me go find a field to harvest out of, to glean out of, and maybe I can find favor in somebody's sight and they'll let me do that. And Naomi just gives her permission, go, my daughter, in verse 3. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come upon the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, we already got a hint that Naomi is related through marriage to this man named Boaz, but this word in, in, uh, in verse, um, verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 3, is kind of an interesting word. The word happened is, it could actually be translated from the Hebrew that she happened to happen. And it's, we would have an English translation kind of like happen chance. It was just coincidence. But if you remember, I threw in a little nugget last week, a little cookie, that the Jewish rabbis say that coincidence is not a kosher word. Uh, when we come across something that seems like coincidence, it's just a hint that God is doing something behind the scenes. God is active. And here, clearly, He was. It was no coincidence that she happened to come to the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz, who, oh, by the way, was of the family of Elimelech. Now, apparently Boaz was away. We get to verse 4. Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to his reapers, May the Lord be with you. And he said to him, May the Lord bless you. You know, we have a greeting on Easter. He is risen, and most people know how to respond to that. He is risen indeed. Well, this is one that Brother Steve tried to introduce to us, and we were too dumb. His staff is too dumb to pick it up, but he would say, May the Lord be with you. We were supposed to say, May the Lord bless you, and we struck out on that, so I think he gave up. But, but here we have kind of a picture of, of uh, kind of the Lord of the harvest speaking to his harvesters and the kind of relationship that they had. You know, Boaz is coming from Bethlehem, so we know his fields are not actually in the city of Bethlehem. It's on the perimeter of it, and, and uh, some of us have had the privilege of kind of going to those fields, the fields where uh, Boaz may have harvested, where David may have kept his flocks, the area where Jesus was born. Um, but... As he arrives, he greets his, his, his servants, his workers, but then he speaks to the, to the head servant. And verse 5, Boaz says to his servant, who is in charge, who is in charge of the reapers? Who, whose young woman is this? So apparently, either because she's new on the scene or um, one of the commentators I said was the Moabite women must have been pretty good lookers because um, uh, he noticed her, okay? And um, she's not yet dropping a hanky because she's out there working in the field. And uh, the servant in charge of the reapers replies, well, she's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. So apparently it was common knowledge that Naomi had come back. It was a widow now. Her sons had died. Uh, and she brought one of her daughter-in-laws with her who's a Moabitess. So all this information is kind of common knowledge now. And... So the servant in charge um, is, uh, is um, uh, revealing to Boaz who this woman is, and he's taken notice of her. I want to point something out that I, I found interesting in one of the common commentaries is that um, all throughout the Scriptures, and we have a lot of different places of this. I was talking to my friend, uh, Dr. Sloan Manning, uh, beforehand, just all the different figures of speech that God uses throughout the scripture. There's over 200 different types. And, and um, Hosea 12.10 uh, specifically says that God says, I, I spoke through my prophets through visions and dreams and also through, through uh, different types of, of speech. And 
So we have types, we have models all throughout the scriptures. And I want you to notice something about this. In verse 5, Boaz says to his servant, uh, uh, who was in charge of the reapers, who is this young, who, who, whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge identifies who she is, but he doesn't identify himself. And his name is not mentioned here in the story. And, you know, if we, if we kind of get a, a little bit, a half step out of just the story, I find it real interesting that in other narratives in the Scripture, there are times when a servant is functioning as a helper and is not specifically named. In John chapter 14, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on His own initiative. He'll not speak of Himself. He'll He'll glorify me. And so everywhere we have a place where a servant is mentioned but not named, I can't help but think of the Holy Spirit. You remember when Abraham made his servant promise to go out and find a bride for Isaac? And you know, if we do a little bit of homework, we could go ahead a couple chapters and we can find out what his name was. But in that, he's not named. And he goes out and he finds a bride for, for uh, Isaac, Rebecca, and it's a beautiful story of answered to prayer. But we find out a little bit later that his name was, does anybody remember what his name was? Eleazar. Do you know what Eleazar means? Helper. I ironic? Coincidence? I don't know if that's kosher or not. All right. So... Boaz says to the, the, the one servant who's in charge, kind of like the, the, the guy who's in charge of making sure they're doing the work and then also taking breaks and then also getting paid. So he's kind of an important guy. Uh, who's, whose young woman is this? Who is she? Where'd she come from? Servant clues her in. Well, she came back with Naomi from Moab, and she's a Moabitess. And then he reveals this conversation that they had. She said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And thus she came and has remained from morning until now. And she's been sitting in the house for a little while. So apparently there was some kind of a shed or a covering where they could take a break. And she worked all morning. And she asked permission to be in this field. Uh, coincidentally, Boaz's field. And now um, Boaz shows up and he gets this back information. So now he initiates with Ruth. And we pick it up in verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with the maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. And when you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. So he extends to her some privileges that would not normally be accommodated to a, a foreigner. They were allowed to come behind the harvesters. They were allowed to come behind the, the handmaids, but they were not allowed to participate with them. They were supposed to keep their distance. And he's giving her these instructions. I want you to stay in this field. I want you to follow them freely. Come right after the girls who are, are picking up the, the things, uh, uh, the, the crop, and we're going to find out that this was the barley crop. We already found that out because it was the beginning of the barley season. And then we uh, find out that um, he was making an intervention for her because he'd already warned people to not leave her alone. And then he makes provisions for her on her behalf because, and she understands what he's doing for him, or what he's doing for her rather, um, because she falls on her face. Bowing to the ground, verse 10 and she says, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Well, we already know that he's a noble man, and I think he understood God's command, but he's going a step further. Boaz replied to her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. So apparently not just that she came back bitter, but that this woman wouldn't let her go and just almost forcibly came with her from Moab and probably this declaration that Ruth made to Naomi. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to, I'm going to help you. 
I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to worship your God. And where you're buried, I'm going to be buried. I'm just, I'm all in. And so this information had come to Boaz even before uh, he got there. How you left your father and your mother, your land of your birth, and you came to a people that you did not previously know. And then he pronounces this blessing on her. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And it almost puts chill bumps on my arms to hear this man put her under his protection and say, I want to bless you and I want God to bless you and I, I thank you for caring for your mother-in-law. And verse 13, Then she said, I found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. Verse 14 kind of reveals something else. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied, had some left, and that's going to play out in just a minute. But I want, one of the things that I want to point out here is that she was given accommodation with Jews. Jews were not, they were forbidden from sharing a meal with a, with a Gentile. And this plays out in the New Testament when, when Paul has to rebuke Peter because he kind of plays both ends. He acts like a Jew with the Jews and then he eats with the Gentiles, but he won't eat with the Gentiles in front of the Jews. And Paul calls him out on it. Um, so here, Boaz invites her to come and sit with them. And then I want you to see something here. He, he, it says that he... Um, uh, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread. Dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat by the reapers, and he served her roasted grain. And the Hebrew indicates that it was him who served her. It, it wasn't just come and help yourself. It was he brought her in with everybody else, and then he brought her the food directly. So we see her, uh, him treating her with an incredible uh, care and kindness that's over and above what was required even by the law. And this is one of the ways where we see that grace overshadows the law. Thank the Lord it does. Um, because we can maybe see ourselves in all of this as our kinsman redeemer, Jesus, uh, ministers and serves us. Um, then verse 15, when she, when she arose to, to glean, Boaz commanded his servants saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. So she don't, don't push her back. Don't let her drag behind. Bring her up where everybody else is. Let her, let her not glean. Let her glean as, she, as you're harvesting. And then it says, and as she does this, I don't want you to say a word to her. Don't rebuke her. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, there's some discrepancy among commentaries how much that is. Some of them uh, equate an ephod as uh, nine gallons. I think that probably is pretty close to, to correct. It was a, a measurement. Uh, there are some that I read that said it was up to 90 gallons, but that would have been far more than she would have been able to carry. She would have had to have a, an ox cart to get it home, but we know that she carried this home to her mother-in-law. But uh, it's, it's a, actually a dry measure that... Uh, it's maybe close to a bushel. So if you've ever gone out and picked up apples or you know some kind of fruit in a bushel basket, it was probably about that much. But not only that, she, um, she gleaned until evening, and then she goes to her mother-in-law to present this, and verse 18 says, She took it up, went into the city, went back into Bethlehem. Her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned, and she took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. So she took this amount back, and she had some left over from her lunch, and she shares it with her mother. And then we get into this interaction. Her mother-in-law saw what she brought. She's like, girl, you did, really, you did really good for today. Where did you glean today, and where did you work? And may he who took notice of you be blessed. Now, she's not clued in exactly who this is just yet. But she's already pronouncing a blessing on this guy and saying, I, I don't know where you, where you did or wh whoever let you get, bring this much back to us because the, what she brought back was maybe the equivalent of a, of a week's worth of what would feed the two of them. 
And she told her mother-in-law, with whom, with whom she had worked, and said, the man, the name of the man, with whom I work today is Boaz. And I'm sorry. I pictured in my mind that it took Naomi's breath away. She probably had to sit down when she said this. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord. And we see this huge turnaround in Naomi, who has not withdrawn his kindness from us. To the living and to the dead, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. In fact, he's one of our closest relatives. Now, Ruth is probably still clueless at this point, but Naomi knows how it works. <laughs> and as a good mother-in-law, the gears start turning. <laughs> and Ruth said to the Moabitess, Oh, by the way, furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all of my harvest. Now, I want you to remind you by the calendar, the barley harvest is the beginning of the harvest. First fruits, were, first fruits were usually celebrated with the barley harvest, but I want you to know that wasn't the best of what they harvest. The wheat harvest was a much better grain. It traded better in the market. It tasted better. It was easier to work with. Barley was just the first crop to come in. It, was, it, it weathered the, 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 late, uh, the late winter better than, than wheat did, and so they would plant it and harvest it, and then they would replant the field. Um, for the wheat to come in and say, so Ruth is telling us something that wasn't even actually fully revealed in Boaz's proposition to her. I want you to stay until the end of the harvest. He was not talking exclusively about the barley harvest. He was saying, I want you to come back here, and when we have other grains, I want you to feel free to come and harvest here. So, and then... Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids. Now, one of the teachers that I've been exposed to as I've studied this is a guy by the name of Chuck Mistler, and he says in this, he said, I wish I could, I could do a good New York Jewish mom's accent when I said this, <laughs> but, but he, he didn't, and, or he tried one time, and somebody rebuked him about it, so I'm not even going to try. But... <laughs> But what, what I want you to see here is this dynamic of Ruth being clued in by her mother-in-law to some things that she's unaware of that uh, we're going to see play out in the, in, the, in the next two chapters. But she says, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in the field. Now, that was a, a warning that, that was a real threat. And it's something that... that uh, because uh, of the city that we live in and because of the times that we live in, uh, all of you ladies need to be careful of. And there's this thing called situational awareness. And that is when you get out of your car, you grab hold of your purse and you look around and you are aware of what's going on around you before you get out of your car. And then as you come back with your groceries or whatever it is that you bought, that you look around. And I'm, I'm so proud of my wife because the other day she came out of the grocery store at at um, Kroger and she noticed that there was a car there and there's somebody sitting in the car and she was by herself and she had a couple bags of groceries and she decided you know I don't know I can't see through the windows I don't know who that is and I'm not profiling anybody I just don't know who that is so I'm gonna go back in the store and she got somebody to come out with her to help load the groceries and I think that that was a wise thing well this is a wise thing that her mother-in-law is guiding her in you need to follow what Boaz has said because the people respect him. The people are going to leave you alone if you follow the guidelines that he's given. And then we have just the final summation of, of chapter 2. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So we have some, some other details here that I don't really have time to get into. But um, what I want you to see that 
there were some things that as we read through this, this is part of what I'm trying to pull the curtain back on, is that there's some things that just because as Gentiles, unless we take the time to dig in and find some resources and study them, we can just skip on by this and it doesn't mean anything to us. But as we understand the, the law of gleanings, as we understand the, the calendar and we understand that this, this book of Ruth plays a special place in the, the Jewish liturgy in the year. It falls at the time that they read it annually, right at, at the Feast of, of Weeks, at the, at the time that we celebrate the birth of the church. And the story is about a, a Jewish noble prince taking a Gentile bride as a wife. And then we understand that the Jewish pattern uh, reveals prophecy to them. And if they see a repeated pattern, it reveals things to them. And we have the back end of the story of a, a Jewish prince who died on a cross, who rose again from the dead, who was coronated in heaven, who one day is soon going to call his Gentile bride to himself. And all of a sudden, this story takes on a totally different meaning to us. It's not just a sweet love story. It's a picture of what happened to us as we got drawn into, by the Holy Spirit, the bride of Christ. And we look forward to a day when that will be consummated with our, our great bridegroom, our kinsman redeemer. So we've covered the law of gleanings tonight. If you want to read a little bit more about that, if you're taking notes, you can look up in Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, and Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through 21. So there's actually just a couple verses in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy that, that address this. But thankfully, Boaz knew about this, and hallelujah, Naomi did too. <laughs> um, and we're going to see in the next few weeks how this all plays out. Now, part of your homework going out of this is to reread the, the whole book and then I want you to see if you can get a hold of something. You can look this up on, on the internet and probably find some information about it. Some of it may be good, some of it may be uh, very just surface, but I want you to look up what the, the, the law of the Leverite marriage, and I want, you, I want to spell this to you because it's easy to get it confused. It sounds like something Levitical or Levite but it actually, Leverite is a, is a Latin word. And so I want you to look up the Leverite, the law of Leverite marriage, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, marriage. And we're going to see this play out in chapter 3. The biblical reference is Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. And it's going to seem very foreign to you. You might, it might, uh, ladies, it might turn your stomach a little bit. Guys, it might turn your stomach too. We see it play out in Genesis 38, and if you want, you can add that to your reading because next week I'm going to talk about that as well and show you how that fits into the, to our whole story. Um, tonight, we did something that uh, I learned from Lois Tverberg that the Jewish rabbis do something that they call stringing pearls, where they take a passage here and they take a passage here and they show how they connect and they take a passage here and they show how they connect with one another. And as we leave, um, those of you who are writing some notes, you can write these, jot these three verses down. In John chapter 5, and verse 30, 39, Jesus said to the Pharisees who were student of, students of God's Word, you search the Scriptures because you think in these you're going to find eternal life, but these speak of me. And I believe that, again, there's no coincidence. Psalm 40 uh, the psalmist says this, Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. King James says it kind of a little bit different. He says, The sum, of, sum total of the book is written of me. And then a verse that I kind of referred to a little bit earlier, Hosea 12.10 says, I've also spoken to the prophets, and I gave numerous visions, and through the prophets I gave parables. And that word parables, we think of it as a specific thing like a story that has a, a moral meaning, but it's actually a Hebrew word that means a whole lot more than that. Just think of that overstuffed suitcase. It means all different types of figures of speech. And we see it play out in, in uh, all different types, uh, and some of them really bizarre and crazy as you follow Ezekiel's life and even Jeremiah's life, and we're going to 
get later into something that Jeremiah did as part of a of an anticipatory anticipatory return to the land when he buys land and buries the title deed in the ground knowing that the Babylonians are coming to take him away and I'll explain that in week or last week that we're together so I'm trying to throw out some cookies just to get you curious but any questions I I'm, I've went a little bit long tonight thank you for your patience any questions okay those of you who have to pick up children you just know you need to go and and the prayers go beyond this okay no questions I'll hang around for a minute if you have one that you're ashamed to ask in front of everybody. All right, let me pray for us as we go. Lord, once again, we thank you for just caring about us like this. Thank you for reaching out to us. Holy Spirit, thank you for being the one to cover over us and draw us to our Savior. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you did to make it possible for us to qualify as one of your children and part of your bride. And we do. We look forward. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Come tonight if you would. But thank you for this. Thank you for this story. And, oh, Lord, thank you that it's more than just a story, that it reveals a a loving Father who made a way for people who had no hope. We love you, Lord Jesus. Go with my brothers and sisters. Protect them and lead them. And Lord, just go before us in all things and teach us to love you more as your bride. I pray it in Jesus' name.